chapter 5, verse 1, all the way uh, to chapter 6, verse 13, but we're not going to read every verse in the passage. I'll hop around a little bit, but we will be starting at uh, chapter 5, verses 1. Hear God's word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle, which means they are lazy. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. I'm going to jump to verse 14. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. I'll jump to verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day to gather as your church and worship you. I pray that your word is made clear to us. I ask that you protect me from error and protect us all from misinterpretation of your word. May you be glorified and honored by all that we do. Amen.
Well, this past Thursday was the uh, last day of school for our kids. They hopped off the bus, very excited to start the summer, of course. Sarah got some root beer flo uh, floats ready. It's uh, the bullwear annual tradition on the last day of school. But it wasn't long, two hours, in fact, before one of our daughters said, I'm bored. <laughs> two hours into summer has to be some kind of record, I would imagine. My suggestion to clean the basement didn't help. All that excitement to start summer reduced down to disappointment and boredom uh, within a couple hours. Summer was not what she expected. Life is like that sometimes. You're really excited about something. You have unmet expectations. It's a letdown, disappointment. Our text today is like that. The past couple weeks, as we've gone through the book of Exodus, we learned that God has done some pretty remarkable things. He's appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Um, he's made a staff into a snake, among other things. He's told Moses that, that uh, he would speak through Moses to Pharaoh. Uh, he has told Moses that uh, the Israelites will be free from their 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And in chapter 4, the previous chapter before what we just read, Moses meets with the elders in Israel. And all the Israelites agree, Moses and Aaron should go and talk to Pharaoh. But chapters 5 and 6, our text today, leave Moses very disappointed. It doesn't go as he expected. It, wasn't, it didn't go as he was told by God himself. The outline for our sermon today, point number one, is you see God's heart for the oppressed. That's number one, you see God's heart for the, for the oppressed. Number two is there's unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. And the last one is God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. We see God's heart for the oppressed. Uh, Egypt was a world superpower at this time. Now, scholars debate about the exact timing of Egypt's history uh, when the Exodus took place. There's some debate about that. But arguably, one of the most advanced civilizations uh, at the time period. Okay? Uh, they were powerful, a powerful nation. Uh, slavery was normal during this time. Actually, slavery was normal most of human history, guys. We don't like to think about that, but it's true. Owning another human being was normal. It was always evil, but it was common practice. And especially in the ancient Near East, it was standard, standard procedure for a country. Many of us are familiar with how God created human beings, right? We know the creation story, the seven days of creation. We know that the last thing he did was create human beings, the pinnacle, you know, the height of his creation. Uh, God pronounced everything else before that to be good. Creation was good. He pronounced humans, human beings to be very good. Tov me'od, very good. That's the worldview that Christians have, that human beings are a step above. But there are a lot of ancient mythical human origin stories a lot of us don't know about today, uh, including from ancient Egypt. Do you know why humans were created according to these ancient human origin myths? There was a common theme running through all of them in different nations. A deity, a false god, made human beings to be slaves to gods. Very common narrative. That's why people existed in their worldview, to be slaves to the gods. The ancient people would say, well, if we just serve gods well and do things like feed them, and perhaps maybe that will cause us to be blessed by them. Okay, God's often required food to be placed on an altar for them. So ancient people said, if we serve the gods well, maybe they'll give us a good harvest. 
Maybe we'll get a military victory. Maybe we'll have uh, healthy children for future generations, th those kinds of things. And there was this mutual give and take relationship between human beings and the false gods. Uh, th this is a very transactional type of relationship, right? It's kind of like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. <clears throat> so how did the Egyptians justify enslaving the Hebrews? Well, everyone's already a slave anyways. Everyone's already a slave to gods. You're starting with a low view of humanity already. That is the worldview. It's not like the, Judeo uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview that created actually the space for human civilization to get away from slavery. But in this passage, uh, you see the Hebrews were viewed as being lower still than the Egyptians. Uh, and so you can hear prejudice in Pharaoh's voice. Idle, idle, you're lazy. Three times in Exodus 5, chapter 8 and 5:17, Pharaoh calls the Hebrew people lazy. It's the lazy Jews. These people are lazy. That's the problem. That's what he said. Racism, prejudice, ethnocentrism dripping from his tongue. You can see in this passage. So we see this problem all throughout human history. This is not exclusively an ancient problem, of course. Uh, it's not exclusively a white problem either. Uh, many agree that the Egyptians likely had a darker complexion than the Hebrews, which is, of course, the opposite of the type of racism that the Western world experienced, including the, uh, you know, obviously the United States during the um, African slave trade era. But anytime you're pointing at someone's ethnicity, for example, and saying it's those people, they're the problem. Uh, it's in their blood to be like that. Uh, this is the common issue throughout all of human history, and it's sinful, and it grieves the heart of God. There's an interesting article, kind of has some fascinating stats that I'll share with you. Uh, it's brief, but it's titled, The Steady Decline of Race Relations in the United States. It shows that from 2008, kind of put yourself back in this time period, 2008 to 2013, okay? United States adults reported an increase, okay? A positive trend regarding race relation ratings. Okay, positive, 2008, 2013. I'll get more specific. There's a Gallup poll in 2013 that said 68% of United States adults said that race relations were, quote, good in the good category, 68% in 2013. By 2015, two years later, that number dropped to 47%, okay, 21% decrease. Now we're gonna get, not gonna get into like, let's identify what happened. Um, it's important to do that, but from 2013 to 2021, it has been an annual steady decline, okay? Interesting, right? So whether you believe it or not, at the very least, Everyone should be able to, to agree uh, that the perception, at least, at least the perception exists that race relations have gotten worse recently, especially since 2013. So no way around it. Topics like these uh, have become more prominent, always have been. You look back at ancient Egypt. It was prominent then. But I'm sure we all hope, I, know, I, I understand that I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, I, I really do. Um, but I'm sure we all hope for the day that skin color can be considered as arbitrary and inconsequential as hair color or eye color. I'm glad we don't all have the same hair color and eye color, right? Diversity can be celebrated in that sense. The world might be a little bit more boring, perhaps, if we didn't. God is creative and an artist. 
I think that's reflected throughout um, human beings and as well as the diversity in all of his creation. But does the color of your hair tell you what's inside of a person's heart? Obviously not. Does the, mel does the melanin content of your skin determine how you treat your fellow man? Does it tell you who loves God or whom God loves? Of course not. So who really cares? Well, unfortunately, many forces work to try to take us backwards here. I think in some ways where we are going backwards, like currently in, 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 our, in our culture and society. Um, here's a couple of efficiently stated things that God's word has to say on this matter. Okay? And I do think this is really interesting. that I chose a, a verse in the Old Testament and a verse in the, in the New Testament. Leviticus 19.15 says this, Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. That's equality. Okay? Now, the poor and the great could mean multiple things here. It could mean socioeconomic status, could mean wealth, could, could mean you know, poor and the rich, could mean social status. And obviously, in the context of today's passage, I'm talking about ancient Egypt right here. I'm talking about ethnic heritage, heritage things, things of that sort. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. James 2.1 says this, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Must not show favoritism. If people or structures in our society are making determinations about human value based on non-essential things, such as your ethnic heritage, this is wrong. God is against that. It's unbiblical. God's church should be against these things too. Am I the best person to be discussing this issue? Probably not. Um, but it's in the text, and I'm preaching today. We're not a perfect church, but we do aim to at least be a courageous church. If it's in God's word, we need to talk about it. And it came up today. The reality is that the ancient Egyptians enslaved an entire people group for 400 years. It's a time period that's much longer than the United States. Why? Because they made the mistake of prioritizing things that are not essential to God. These chapters in Exodus demonstrate that God is for the redemption and liberation of the oppressed, which is why the African-American community throughout Western civilization clung, I mean clung, to the book, I mean this book as a whole, but to the book of Exodus in particular, for decades. So these chapters, five and six, show that God has a heart to liberate others for freedom, and calls the church to be about those same things as well. God has a heart to liberate the Hebrew people from bondage. That's point number one. Number two is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. We often like plot twists, right? Like in a, in a good book or, or a, a surprise ending in a movie. I'm thinking of The Sixth Sense, if anyone remembers that movie. You had Bruce Willis and that one child actor who was in like everything for five years, and I don't know who he is, but uh, it's, this, it's this twist ending. You didn't see it coming. But we do not really like that in real life. Um, we don't like failing to meet expectations in the real world. Uh, poor Moses in verses 21 and, and 23 did not see this outcome coming. Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites leave to Moses' face. Then the Israelite leaders are beaten and even suggesting for, for, excuse me, for even suggesting this idea. Then the Israelites turn on Moses. 
Okay, this is not how Moses thought things would go down. Up to this point, all Moses did was complain to God, saying he's not the guy for this job. He said it pretty consistently to God. Actually, by the time we get to the end of our reading today, 6.12, uh, Moses objects one more time. So if anyone's been keeping track, Moses has now objected to God's plan seven times so far in Exodus. He doesn't want to go. Here's some samples, 4.10. He says he's slow of speech, and the Hebrew says he's his, his tongue is heavy. If you can imagine trying to talk when your tongue is three pounds or something, you know what I mean? It'd be pretty difficult. That's the word picture Moses uses for himself. 6.12, he says he's a poor speaker. That's why Pharaoh didn't listen. And 6.30, we didn't get to that yet, but he says, again, he's a poor speaker. Pharaoh, that's why Pharaoh will not listen to him. So scholars debate about what Moses, uh, what his issue was here. You know, I'd say the majority say that he had a speech impediment of some sort. Um, others suggest that there's a language barrier. Remember, he, when he, he fled Egypt already, and he was out of Egypt for 40 years. So some have said, well, now he's back talking to Pharaoh, and he, maybe there's a language issue there. I know he grew up there, but he's been gone for 40 years. Maybe that has something to do with it. And others just simply say maybe it was a metaphor. Moses was using a metaphor for trying to communicate that he's just unqualified for this job that God is calling him to do, which God never disagrees that he is unqualified. Um, but... It is very well documented that ancient Egyptians placed a really high premium on uh, eloquence of speech. Um, it, it is known in the ancient world that, that that mattered to them. But ultimately, we don't know for sure uh, what exactly Moses' issue was, uh, but he kept making excuses. But ultimately, even through those excuses, he was obedient. You have to give him that, right? He, he whined and said, I'm not the guy, but then he went to, to Egypt. And he whined and said, he's not the guy, but then he talked to Pharaoh. There's something to be said there. And I think, you know, ultimately, even if it doesn't result in the desired outcome, obedience honors God. I'll say it again. Even if it doesn't result in the desired outcome, obedience still does honor God. Even though it didn't turn out the way he thought. Now, this is hard to believe sometimes. You get to, you know, chapter 5 and verse 14 here. Here's the results. Here's the results of Moses' obedience that we can see anyways. 5.14 says the foremen, okay, the, the foremen are some, some leaders in the Israelite workforce. Okay, so 5.14 says the foremen of the people of Israel were beaten. We're talking real blood, real bruises, real pain. Then uh, their workload is increased. The hard work of brick making involved hauling mud and water, shaping Bricks mostly by hand. Sometimes they, apparently they did use molds. I know more about brick making than I ever thought. Ancient Egyptian brick making. I did some research. But setting bricks to dry in the sun for several days, hauling them to the work site. Each brick is over a foot long, six inches wide and thick. The straw apparently previously provided uh, for them and used as an adhesive in the process for the bricks. They have to get themselves now and continue to meet the quotas, the demand for the same number of bricks. So the Israelites then turn on Moses. You read in verse 21, it says that they're a stench to Pharaoh now. So verse 22 says this, Moses turned to the Lord with all these problems. Well, that's good, right? In your darkest hour, where do you turn? I would hope that if a record of my life is, is kept, it would be said of me, then Todd turned to the Lord right? Well, yeah, but 
Did you look at Moses' prayer to God? Verse 22, it's a very short prayer. Then Moses turned to the Lord, like I mentioned, and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? It's quite an accusation to lobby against God. And then he says this, Why did you ever send me? Again, I said it's a short prayer. You know exactly what he's thinking and how he's feeling here. He continues, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. That's, That's it. That's his prayer. He stops right there. Again, quite a prayer. So he turned to the Lord, but it's like that, and I don't even necessarily know if it's a good or bad prayer. It's authentic and raw. And God handles it. You can see God does, isn't, doesn't appear to be mad in chapter 6 when God does respond. But in this moment, Moses has had enough. He was obedient, kicking and screaming, but he was obedient, and it looks like it's over. Oppression increases. Things are worse, way worse. You may know the rest of the story if you know the Exodus narrative, right? Uh, it's not over. We're in chapters 5 and 6. There's 40 chapters in Exodus. We're going to continue on. But Moses didn't know that at this point. Many of us know all too well that not everyone experiences a final deliverance like the Israelites are going to experience. The previous generations of Israelites weren't set free. 400 years of slavery, generation after generation after generation after generation, right? And this situation did not go as Moses planned. What do we do with these unmet expectations that are really inevitable in life? Well, after Moses expresses his frustration, God answers in chapter 6. He reminds Moses that he keeps his promises. That's what he does. God keeps his promises. That's the third and final point. God begins to remind Moses of his commitment to his people. You know, I skipped over it just because it's a lot of text, but there's a lot of good stuff in there, what God says. He talks about his covenant with Abraham, uh, basically saying, I'm not going anywhere, Moses. Everything that I've said up until this point still is true, and I'm with you. In 6.6, really great verse, says, I will deliver you and redeem you. The Hebrew word for redeem has specific meaning in the context of of slavery here. In Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, it means that a family member has the right to purchase a relative from slavery if the person has previously sold themselves into slavery, okay? Now, slavery was not always racially motivated in the ancient Near East, okay? That's not how it worked. Oftentimes, you know, some group conquered you and now you're a slave. You could be the same color, whatever. It didn't matter. Like, you were a slave now. You belonged to them. Um, Or uh, you could, if you were in debt, you could serve it off. You could hire yourself to be a slave. And in those cases, the family was able to buy them back. That's what Leviticus, this is 2548, Leviticus 2548 says. Now the Bible talks about how we are slaves as well. We're slaves to sin. Read in the New Testament. Read Romans 6, can't miss it. Slaves to sin, but... God purchased us. Those who are in Christ are bought with a price. No matter how dark it gets, we're bought with a price, purchasing us through the payment Jesus made with his own life. Okay, No matter how how dark it gets, 
God will keep that promise through eternity. Now, how does God redeem? Going back to 6.6 here. We see in in chapter 6, verse 6, God says, "I I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Okay? Don't dismiss that phrase as just a casual metaphor. It is a metaphor, but it's not just a metaphor. This is a word picture, but it's not just a word picture. Understand some context about the, uh, the terms. Outstretched arm, which happens, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, as well as strong hand. That's also mentioned in 6.1. Both terms are used in chapter 6. Arm and hand, you have to understand this, are used really interchangeably. They're, they're essentially synonyms in the ancient world. So these are common terms in ancient Near Eastern literature, okay? not just biblical terms. They're all over the place. And in Egyptian inscriptions in particular, they're used to describe the power of Pharaoh. Okay? In Egyptian theology, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I do know some things, Pharaoh is in, uh, the incarnation of a deity called Horus. Uh, and so in 6.1, God says that Pharaoh will use a strong hand. So strong hand is applied to Pharaoh here. And he uses the term twice in 6.1. Pharaoh will use a strong hand. And in 6.6, just a few verses later, God uses the term outstretched arm to describe not Pharaoh, but himself. Right? God is creating a contrast here between himself and Pharaoh. He's flexing really hard here, guys. Okay, he's, Moses has said, you know, he's basically bared his heart. He's very upset. And God is saying, We'll see who has the outstretched arm when all is said and done. That's what God is telling Moses. He's also saying, Moses, I know it's bad right now. You stick with me. I'm the one with the outstretched arm. It's me, and I'll prove it to you. I keep my promises. Everything that I promised, it will happen. It will come to fruition. At the end of the reading, you know, verse 13 was the last one. My translation is God says, get get back out there. Okay, I'll just read it real quick. It says, But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He just reinforces what he's already told him. And he says, I know it didn't work out that way, but get back out there. And, you know, as we'll see over the next few weeks, that's generally and imperfectly what Moses and Aaron do. So I'll close with this. I'm willing to bet that something has happened at least recently in your life um, that has caused us to doubt God's promises to us. But God called Moses and, and us today to remember that it's God that has the outstretched arm. Not the powers of this world, as dark as it may seem at times. Whatever else seems like the oppressive Pharaoh in our lives, Whatever else seems like the 400 years of slavery to us, Exodus 5 and 6 remind us to cling to God's promises and walk in obedience. It's God that has the outstretched arm to redeem his people, and he will keep his promises to redeem us through Christ, through eternity. Let's pray. God, you have a heart to to liberate others from oppressive powers. May we join with you and and partner with you in this effort and trust that uh, you will liberate us from the consequence of our our own sin on the last day. We confess our frustration, Lord, our confusion, uh, doubt sometimes. 
when we think you're doing things the wrong way. Our frustrations build. They mount when, when things don't go our way. So God, uh, give us the faith to trust in your timeless, your, your eternal promises. We thank you for your outstretched arm that redeems your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.